Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. My next guest is Craig Daly, the founder and CEO of a business called Comfort Medical Supply. This business was a nationally accredited supplier of home medical equipment across the US. Now, what I love about Craig is his candid discussion around his business, from startup through periods of rapid growth and the eventual sale to private equity in 2011. In fact, Craig's company was recognized three times by Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing privately held companies in America. Craig reveals some of the ingredients of that success and how his business model gave him a competitive advantage during this period of expansion. I hope you enjoy the show. This is Craig Daly. Hello, Craig. Welcome to the show. Simon, how are you? It's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm very well and uh, and very excited to be chatting to you today. Uh, Just for our guests, uh, Craig, where where are you calling from or dialing in from here at the moment? Right now, I'm uh, in a little town north of Tampa, Florida called Holiday. And um, we have a little house here right on the canal. I get visited by alligators regularly, so <laughs> we have a little bit of a time difference. It's a rainy night here. Ah, oh, there you go. Yes. It's, uh, well, I, I'm used to being on calls with people in the States and the UK and everything else, and it's always it, it's always an interesting dynamic. So uh, so hail from the future anyway. We're, uh, we're now into our Wednesday. That's right. Um, so, <laughs> but, uh, and there's another thing that uh, I guess some Australians will relate to is, well, you have alligators, we have crocs. I know um, you do. And, and, <laughs> yeah, more, more up north than in, uh, than in Sydney. We, we kind of uh, talk more about the sharks in the harbour and the, you know the various other things that can kill you in the bush just out there, but uh, exactly. hey, it's all good fun. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> Craig. Re- really excited to hear your story today because I know um, you know there's a lot of business owners who, who listen to this podcast and and who they're on their journey, they're at various different stages of it, and so we always love hearing stories from entrepreneurs who've who've been there, they've they've beaten their path, and and are happy to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you yeah. know because there's always lessons to be learned. But but maybe you could uh, kick kick us off a little bit and just give us a little bit of your back, background and and sort of what led you to to you know the, the the business we're going to talk about. Okay, sure. Well, believe it or not, I came from the background of hotels. I was in the hotel industry for almost twenty five years, and um, we had a it was a great run. Had a great time. It's a young man's game. We uh, probably relocated about every eighteen to twenty four months. So I've worked in major hotel companies across the U.S. in most major markets from Miami to Chicago, L.A., 
Phoenix, uh, Salt Lake City, Denver. And, um, you know, it, it was it was a lot of fun. But over time, all the moving, it starts to get old. And uh, when you get up into your yeah, 40s, 45, you really kind of want to start settling down a little bit. <laughs> so I actually had, had connected with a consulting firm. And we consulted small to medium-sized businesses, much like I do now. And that was on the road as well. But they, they landed me, at, it was all kinds of industries. And they landed me in a very interesting little company in Daytona Beach. And that company actually was doing some home medical equipment business as well. But they had grown about as far as they could go within the state of Florida. They wanted to expand the business, and they didn't really know how to do it, given the current model, the business model they had. So I came up with, without going into all the gory details, I came out with, with a pretty unique model that I don't think had ever been done. And what, it, what we did was we, we marketed directly con- to consumers with one location, but outside of the state of Florida. Well, it actually worked pretty well. We, we took that business from about to two and a half million a year to over 14 million a year in 18 months. Wow, nice. That's huge growth. Yeah, it was. And so, of course, in 18 months time, when I saw that happen, I figured out, you know what? I might be able to do this for myself. Yeah. A uh, quick question on that. It's, um, you know, two, 2 million to 14 in 18 months. Like, you know, I, I think if most people listening to this, if they did 100% growth in, in 12 or 18 months, you know, they would probably find that exciting but having its own challenges. Well, it's one of those things where you said be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you might get it. Yeah. It was. It's, exponential growth, like, that's very challenging. Was there was there anything that you you know stood out? I guess as as you know, for anybody who's out there on that sort of growth path at the moment, or was there any sort of things that stood out that they should be you should be mindful of when you're kind of doing that type of growth? Well, I think you learn to be very nimble. You have to be able to react quickly uh, when you're experiencing growth like that. It comes so fast that you think you're ready, and you find out you're not. And presents all kinds of staffing issues, labor issues. And, you know, in today's economy, uh, especially here in the States, everybody's having a very hard time finding employees. Well, at the time that happened, we were at a 3.5% unemployment rate in Florida. Oh. <laughs> so we were, it, sent us, it sent us reeling. So, you know, hiring that many people that are good in that shorter period of time can be very challenging. But we adapt. And I think entrepreneurs know that everything is about adapting and, you know, bring it, I'll, I'll make it happen. And that's what happened. Did you find staff, were, were there staff that kind of freaked out or burnt out along the way that just, you know, I imagine there's, you know, knowing people, there's, there's some people who just like that nice, stable, consistent environment. So, it was a challenge. I mean, you have some people that really uh, soaked it in and enjoyed it. Um, and those are the people that are probably going to end up being your future leaders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least within the company. 
And then you had the others that just it scared them to death. But I found that the, the, the existing employees adapted a lot quicker uh, than I thought they would. And the new employees, some were were fine with it. If they, you know, they came from especially like a call center and type environment. They were used to it. Other people, not so much. It's like freaked out, and you know, in a week they're gone, if if that long. So, you know, that kind of growth, people, you're going to experience a lot of turnover, a lot of growing pains happen fast in a short period of time. And so you saw that sort of growth and thought, hang well, on a minute. Yeah. I saw, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of funny. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs tell you that timing is everything. Sometimes you throw in a little bit of luck. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with Daytona Beach, but they have a big annual Harley-type bike week every year. So, so just for, for us uh, geographically challenged people who aren't in the state, so what, what state is, is Daytona Florida, in? Florida. Okay. On the it east is coast, Florida, okay. East coast, but more central. Well, Daytona Beach has been a f- famous vacation spot and spring break place for years. Some of that's kind of died down now, but back in the day, it was the place to go. Yeah, yeah cool. And so they have a bike week every year. And while I was transitioning, I – Went out during bike week and I bought a $25 raffle ticket for a new Harley. I won. Ah, nice. (laughs) So I kept that bike about six months. And then when I was in the process of really getting ready to pull the trigger on it, because my business was actually a startup. So I I figured, well, I'm going to sell this Harley because I can always buy another one, which I did. (laughs) And, um, actually use that money to help seed fund the business. And um, I took basically the same model. We did it a little bit different on the marketing side. Do, do you remember what kind of model it was? What model bike yeah, it was? Yeah, so, you know, the internet back then, this was 2002. So the internet was around, but it wasn't you really used like it is today. And, you know, our target market at the time were primarily seniors, age 55, 65 and up. So... Back then, the seniors weren't quite as internet savvy. So I went to a very old model, and we did direct mail with postcards. And at one point, we were sending out um, over 3 million pieces of mail a year. Wow. And what was so interesting about it was that we actually came up with a consistent calculation of what our return was. And I could get within how many units. We, we, we specialize in the power of wheelchairs and power mobility. Yes, okay. So I could get within 10 to 15 units of predicting what we would do over time. Wow. So, so, so get, put some meat on the bone for me around this. So you're doing powered mobility, so wheelchairs. Um, were you actually manufacturing the chairs? Were you importing them? What, what did no. that look like? Yeah, this is what made our model a little interesting was because we were a dealer, basically, for two or three major manufacturers. And were they U.S.-based or international? Or Depends what they <laughs> – their description was, you know, some things are made in the U.S.A. and some things aren't. So a lot of times you'd see assembled in the U.S.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, we actually, you know, we dealt with a Chinese company who manufactured a very good product. Um, in fact, I, we, had, we ended up being one of the biggest buyers, and I've been to their plant in China. It was fascinating. But they, they, we used both American. I mean, the, the dealers themselves were American, 
we had gone to the manufacturers who actually shipped most of the parts in for the manufacturers, dealers, whatever you want to call them, that we purchased from. So gotcha. the supply chain was a little took a little turn. So what we did was because we were marketing directly to consumer, which in itself brings us some challenges. The idea was that if you could do this out of one location and serve the entire country with no inventory, you had a winning model. Yeah, as you all know, if the inventory is dollars tied up on the shelves, and so that's an investment. Then you have shipping as an investment, and yeah. by law, yeah. we were required to go into the home and assemble these because we were we were billing through Medicare, which in the U.S. is very heavily regulated. We had to adhere to all the regulations and the laws and the legal side of things, so we were required to go into the homes. So I'm thinking to myself, well, how do we do that and grow this thing nationwide? Mm-hmm. So we came up with this idea, and they're actually using it today. There are companies that sprung up off of this. Uh, I think I was one of the first. But what we did was I called all my – whenever we would get – we would market to a certain area, and we would have somebody call us up. I would actually call a competitor that was qualified in that area. I said, I'm going to pay you to set this unit up in the home as my subcontractor and do our delivery. And, of course, if, you know, you get a lot of you hear a lot of crickets when you make that kind of call to your competitor. <laughs> and, they, and, you know, they come up and the first response is, well, you're, you, you take my customer. You're taking my customer. Yeah. I say, well, it's not your customer because I already have it. <laughs> I said, so why not make some money off of this? And I pay you enough that pays for your truck and crew for the whole day and some profit. And you're going to get the repair and the maintenance work. Why, why not? Yeah, this is a win. Yep. So we actually developed a network of about 450 people across the U.S. that would do this for us. Now, the right. companies that came up have been doing nothing but that now. But yeah, yeah, of course. Then what we would do is we would get the manufacturer to drop ship the specific unit that we sent them the specs on to that guy, our competitor, out in whatever city that our customer was. So now we did it from one location. So no brick and mortar cost, 48, 50 locations across the U.S., no inventory, and a very profitable operation that was really driven by uh, direct mail marketing. You know, that's fascinating. Cause, I mean, you're ahead of your times there, Craig. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but this is the Amazon model, right? Like, I mean, how many, how many, uh, you know, even solopreneurs these days, it's uh, find some stuff that people want, have the manufacturer drop ship, get out of the way. It really, you know. it is. It was kind of a pre-Amazon model, but marketing, not so much. We did very little on, on the website. Today it would be different, but again, you know, it's our customers that was different than back then. And, and and with your suppliers, did you have any kind of distribution agreement or or anything like that, exclusivity or anything like that, to be able to distribute for certain geographies? No, um, there were no with it, with this type of business. They had no restricted locations. That may have changed over time, but 
their feeling was that they had so many dealers all over the country. But these were big guys. These were big, big companies. So for them to try to manage that, I think, would have been very difficult, very sticky. And, of course, you know, if you end up being number three, number four buyer in the U.S. on their list, they're fine with that. They don't really care. So we were lucky that there were no geographic, you know, no restrictions, really. And, and, and out of interest, the the companies that you were sort of partnering with to go and install or, or assemble um, the wheelchair, were they also selling the same products? Many were. Many were. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so they were familiar with we, it. Yeah. That's how we overcame that objection was, you know, you can share in it or you can get none of it. Yeah. Why yeah. not get a piece of it? If, if you're not going to do it, someone else will. Absolutely. <laughs> and sometimes that would happen. You know, we'd have to make three or four calls around an area to find somebody. But the reasonable people that were open, a little bit more entrepreneur-minded, I think, they were fine with it. And it worked yeah, out great. Yeah. Interesting. So the model primarily was then, I mean, you're making money on the sale of the of the equipment after that, though, presumably, I mean, there's no. I'm trying to think of if there's any kind of recurring nature to this because the 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 installers would be the ones who take on any maintenance. Was that was that was there much in it for them on the maintenance side, or were these things kind of pretty much once they're built? Well, yeah, the the, the way that works is you're actually right um, because we were also by law required to maintain that equipment for those customers for at least a year, maybe two. Sometimes maybe for the length of the warranty. So the way that worked was that we could bill service and repairs and maintenance through Medicare. And at the time, the amounts that they would pay on that were generous. And, of course, on the unit itself, very generous. It was back in the day, we used to say it was a license to print money. But things have changed a lot since then in that area. But we would, so, you know, we would go to the same guys that delivered for us and say, they've got a maintenance problem. Mrs. Jones at this address, they would go take care of it. Uh, We would pay them a flat rate or an hourly service call. And then we were able to bill back our cost plus some on whatever Medicare would allow. Now, this is, this is not shady business. This was completely transparent, completely above board. Um, it had all been approved by our lawyers. Um, we were an accredited company, so we um, we just got creative with the business model and really that we're able to dial down our costs to make it very profitable. Well, as you said, I mean the, the Medicare, and the same in Australia, it's called Medicare here as well, and it is heavily regulated and 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 monitored. But um, you know, I just I think that's clever. I mean, you've you've been able to. If there is any sort of recurring nature of maintenance and repair and, and even client relationship by the sounds of it, you, you, you're actually keeping the asset but not having to carry the overhead of the staff and the equipment exactly and all the right. rest of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes you get incidental sales. Um, you know, somebody needs a, 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 one of the lifts for the back of the vehicle. Somebody needs uh, one of the stair lifts that go inside the home. So we, we offered all of those things. And sometimes they were within an area we could service and sometimes not, but we could still contract it out and make money. So why not? Because the trade-off between that 
having a location is huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, I think it's it's a very clever model. Uh, out of just general curiosity for for those listening, um, what what does a wheelchair or what did it typically sort of cost back in the day? Well, back in the day, <clears throat> our cost for the electronics, you know, the totally mobile electronic, um, was about fourteen hundred dollars. Was our cost. And we were being reimbursed upwards of 5000 Oh, wow. So, yeah. You know, if you, you put your overhead in there and your cost of delivery and so forth, maybe you get $2,000 in it. You get it to 300 units a month, uh, you can do the math, it comes out pretty good. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a very good model. It's um and look at you know without wanting to sound political about this I mean I think it's great that the they actually had programs back then to sponsor and support for wheelchairs it's um you know just as a as a matter of disclosure I I sit on the board for uh, an entity here called the NRL wheelchair so oh, okay. the NRL is like yeah so it's our our one of our football codes here it's like the NFL over there a little bit but um. So the NRL have a um, it's a wheelchair version of the game, and so I sit on that board, and I know that's awesome. I know what it's like for people trying to get chairs. Yeah, like and and for us, we buy chairs and we import them these days, and they they're often upwards and over of five thousand dollars for us even. And you know, admittedly, they need to be sports chairs so people can crash into yeah, each other a little bit. But. <laughs> by the way, um, especially the, the, the sports self propelled, uh, like, like you see in the basketball courts. Yes, absolutely. So these aren't powered. That's a different game again. But it's um, they're, so they're 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 push chairs. But um, but yeah, look, it's an interesting one. And I think just just raising the awareness around the number of people that need chairs and use them is is an important thing. And it's certainly an important thing that's going on now in Australia. I think we're sort of probably playing a little bit of catch up, to be honest, to where to where the US is. Well, you know, that's interesting you bring that up because we right now is we go through that baby boomer. Portion and you know, there's some fifty thousand people a day in the U.S. turning sixty-five. So wow. the market's certainly there. Medicare made many changes since then, and now <clears throat> these wheelchairs have to go on a rental basis. Interesting, and that caused a complete change of what we had to do in our business model. That that's a whole nother story. But fortunately, we had interested parties come in and wasn't looking at our business at the time. So we avoided some of that. Well, it's a very different model, isn't it? Because you go from you go from having low CapEx requirements and, and being quite agile to now you actually have to, have to inf- invest in lots of infrastructure, uh, lots of assets, depreciation, the, you know. And I, and I imagine too, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'll pose the question to you. I, I wonder whether... The users of the chairs, do they view them differently when they own them versus, well, this is not really mine and it's kind of provided to me? <laughs> That's a great question. They all think they own them. Okay, okay. Whether they rent them or Medicare pays for them, whether Medicare pays for it. You see, we were fortunate because we were getting paid in one lump sum. But now they pay in monthly installment. Well, that's a huge change in how you do business. But the the people that receive them, yeah, they'll tell you that's my chair. I bought that chair. No, you didn't. Medicare bought that chair. And the thing of it is, the rental model. You know, if if these people's medical conditions change, you had to go pick up the chair now and take it back. You go into somebody's home. 
that's 75 years old that can't get around and tell me you're going to take the chair. You're putting your life in your own hands. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so, yeah. So yeah, it's, wow. It's, it was a complete change, and, and that's, that's the time we said, because they, they delay and then they change the rules, and you know how bureaucracy is. You know, we saw it was probably time to do something. We made some revisions to our business model, and we got into a customized rehab format, which did require locations. We ended up with six before we sold. But it was sustainable if you have the investors that want to cooperate and, you know, let you do your thing. But when you get involved with the board of directors, and you know, that's, one, that's one thing we might want to talk about at some point. But, you know, an entrepreneur, yeah. I stayed on as CEO. This is after you, saw, you sold? Yeah, for a year. Yeah, yeah. For a year. And I said, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm done. So, so, so t- let's, can I, I'll take you back a step for a moment. So the, the company, you're obviously a shareholder. Were there other shareholders as well? There were. There were. I, I actually only, um, I, I sold the company. I sold 90% of my equity. Right. I retained 10 and but you owned a hundred prior to, to selling, or that's correct. okay. Okay, so you sold. You came into the transaction. You sold ninety percent and and held ten. In in that, uh, there's so much here I want to unpack with you. So, <laughs> as you, well, let me ask the first question. At what point did you start? Were you thinking about selling? Was it this change in model that started making you think, "Hey, maybe it's time"? <laughs> that was a big part of it. It was. Fortunately, we had very good, very good attorneys that were healthcare attorneys. We had people that lobbied on Capitol Hill for Medicare change for our benefit. You know, we had a little bit of foresight ahead of a lot of people. And what the models, the, the changes that we had to make were going to be so costly. It, we either had to go outside and seek additional funding or find somebody that wanted to come in and either buy us out completely or do some type of a partnership. And we ended up with that type of arrangement through um, a private equity group. So they had okay. a number of investors who would invest in a fund. They would create their own fund, and then the fund would purchase the would purchase the company. Yeah, gotcha. And and so at that point, what broadly, what roughly was the company turning over? At that point, we were just tracking at $10 million annually in revenue. Okay. That's a, that's a good company. So, you know, we, we did that. In a period of about 10 years, that was 2000. We actually sold it in 2011. I stayed on through 2012 and left 2013. So um, it was a little less than 10 years that we were able to go from pretty much. I mean, I remember the first office we had was myself, uh, one assistant, two hotel banquet tables, two computers and a phone, two phones. That was it. That's, that's what we started with. You know, then we ended up with a, a space in a strip mall, then the next door space when it opened up, and then the next door space when it opened up, and we almost had the whole the whole side of one strip mall. So it was about $10 million and, and, you know, if, if you're – most of these companies, these private equity groups, they'll come in, and they'll do a multiple of uh, your EBITDA or, or your, your net income. So, so before you went into this and started talking to those external parties, what did you think the company was worth? I really wasn't sure. I think the, at that time, I thought the company was probably worth about three or four million dollars. But I didn't know that much about private equity. 
Yeah, yeah. And and how did you come up with that number? Was that a, a multiple of EBITDA or something like that? Or? My own. Um, but but their their calculations were actually higher, and so that was a great thing. And they also had, <laughs> we all like a little more. They also had a moving a little moving target uh, of a change in working capital. Yes. So they would do a calculation, and from the time that they signed the contract until the time that we closed, if the working capital went up, the price went up. If it were, went down, the, the price would go down to to a certain degree. And uh, the chips fell our way. There was a huge gain in working capital before closing, and it added another million dollars in value. And and that working capital going up without getting into too much sort of technical stuff is is that because I see with a lot of transactions like this, you tend to have to leave some working capital in the business. Right. So is is that part of that calculation was that you had working capital already in there and so you had to leave it in and therefore the final number went up? Yes. So in other words, um, basically at the point of sale, or at the point of closing, what happened was uh, the cash versus the uh, liabilities that had moved to a point where they were actually going to, they were going to end up with more receivables yes, and less gotcha. liabilities. So there was that calculation that was done in, in their eyes, you know, you're buying good receivables because the government backed. Yeah, absolutely. There's no bad debt, in right? <laughs> I mean, there's very little in, in, in their current. So that makes the value of that business go up that much more when you do that. Yeah, fabulous. Can, can I ask you what, what, what the final number was? You can ask. <laughs> Actually, I, I really can't disclose it, but... No, fair enough. It was... It, it was it was more than my multiple calculation. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, great, great. Okay, so well, that's great. So you've come out of this feeling pretty, pretty happy about the the number itself. Talk to me a little bit about the terms because you've already said that you kept ten percent equity. Yeah. Was that by choice or by request? Well, it was by request. It was part of the negotiations. And what a lot of these companies will do, and your listeners should be aware of this, especially in private equity transi- uh, transactions, they will do a holdback in addition to what I had to do. So basically what I did was they took off my 10%. Mm -hmm. Rolled that back into the company as equity for myself. Then there's an additional holdback clause and they'll take a certain percentage. And I can, quite frankly, I can't remember what it was in this case, but I think it was close to half a million dollars. And it basically says that as long as everything happens the way you say it's going to happen. Now, of course, they've done their due diligence. And they've checked us out and our books are clean and everything's beautiful. Everything's wonderful. We're going to sell, but we're going to hold back this money for, I don't know, I think it was 18 months. And if at the time of that 18 months, there are no claims to come against the company for something that I did in the past, mm-hmm. then they're going to release those funds. That's not uncommon in private equity transactions, but for people that are doing a, a you know, a sale, in the lower numbers, it could be a little bit of a shock factor because it's not always what you see is what you get. <laughs> so there's holdback for that. There's reserves for taxes. There's a lot of things that, that happen. And don't ever, 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 ever get divorced in the middle of a sale. Oh, there's another story there, which... <laughs> We're not going to go into that here. <laughs> no, 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 fair enough. <laughs> but I can tell you that, you know, the taxes, the capital gains, and all these types of things... So, you know, 
when you sell a business, regardless of whether it's private equity or private buyer or whatever the case may be, um, if it's a savvy buyer, you know, you have to be, as a savvy seller, be aware of, of what's really going to come out of this transaction, what your tax liability is going to be, you know, future claims that, because we have to, we had to give reps and warranties. So yes. we had to warrant that certain things would not happen for a certain period of time. And if they were, you know, it's, it's kind of like they were taking out an insurance policy. Thanks yeah, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I agree with you. That is, that is a common approach. Um, out of interest, your scenario sounds more like it was, it's sort of a deferral of payment based on just as a little bit of a risk buffer, as you say, insurance policy. Um, and obviously, and I know you'd be familiar with this term as well, but we also see stuff out there that's more of a like an earn out where it's a, Rather than just protecting against downside risk, they're saying, actually, you need to hit this performance criteria for us to pay you these additional amounts. D- did you have any earnout component as well? No. What, basically, well, not, it wasn't really an earnout um, because with all the warranties and reps and the reserves, I wouldn't agree to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. They wanted to at the last minute. They tried to do that. <laughs> Actually, during the closing, they, they said they were a million dollars short. They wanted to do it. And I said, well, it sounds to me like you got a problem because I'm going to get on a plane yes. and go back to Florida. We were closing in Atlanta. And, uh, and of course, all of a sudden that problem went away. But I, no, I had what my deal was, what my deal was is I stayed on with a salary. Mm-hmm. And then I had bonus benchmarks for performance like any CEO would, you know, for, for a larger company. But we didn't, fortunately, we didn't have to do, deal with the earnouts. Yeah, that those performance things were tied to your employment contract, not the actual transaction That's contract. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that makes sense too. It's um, you know, everybody's going to negotiate what's the best deal they can get. So you know, my advice is as a seller or as a as a business owner, you need to do the same. And sometimes you dig your heels in, and you know, if they want you bad enough, and you know, I work with people doing that on these transactions, so. You get a feel for how far you can push somebody and, you know, where they draw the line. Well, and I think, too, one of the things you've got to be able to do, and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are pretty good at this, is is smelling out the BS, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and sort of getting a sense of whether or not there there are real issues or real risks here or whether they're just playing the line and trying to sing a song to you. So yeah. it's... <laughs> no, that is, that's very true. And, you know, the documents, the, the actual amount of documents that were involved in this thing we had two binders and they were all lined out on a conference table 10 feet long i'm not i'm not really exaggerating yeah so wow. you have to have you know a good m&a merger acquisition attorney on a deal like this uh those guys are about five six hundred dollars an hour yes so you yeah. know we racked up fifty sixty thousand dollars in just attorney's fees to do the review and closing, yeah, and, and that that's yeah, absolutely. It's so, and that's that's fairly common too. Um, give me a sense of the the process itself. So, from from when you first started um, thinking about selling to then, obviously, you kind of start engaging buyers, etc., right through to settlement, and you're starting that twelve month transition period. How long did was that process generally? It took us, well, I, I guess if you say from the point of interest to the point of closing, mm-hmm. uh, it was under just under a year. Yeah, okay. But see, we had, we had actually a broker 
who was working for us. And okay. he found that he had his database of investors. So he knew the dynamics of, of what certain investors were looking for. And uh, he brought them to us. So that whole process of, you know, getting the feel for the business, see how you operate, see how you are as a personal guy, so on and so forth. There, you know, that's a few months. And then yeah, you've got an gotcha. offer and you've got to hammer that out. And then due diligence is probably another, at least another month and a half for something that size. So yeah, it was, it was probably about a year all yeah. said and done. So, so that's really interesting. It's, I mean, for, and for those listening who are thinking of potentially selling, I guess the message is, you know, there was a 12-month period of basically running a transaction. There was a 12-month period of working post-transaction on that transition period. So if you want to get out in two years, you kind of need to start now, if not yesterday. Um, and we're not even including a period if you would actually like to work on the business and clean it up and do some improvement, right? Yeah, because we knew, especially once we had an idea of their offer, you know, we knew where we wanted it to be because of that working capital calculation. But it's, it's very true because, you know, when you go to market yourself, you have to make sure you have your ducks in a row, uh, especially if you've got a sophisticated buyer or a group of buyers. Um, because they're going to do a, a pretty full probing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed, um, of, of you and your business, and um, so you need, you know, it's like anything else. You're going to put your best foot forward. Make sure your books are correct. Your operation looks good. It's, I mean, you know, down to places clean and looks not. I mean, everything. So. You're trying to run an operation and do that stuff at the same time. It gets a little crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, you know, there's a couple of common things I think. I'm interested to know if this relates to you, but so many people I speak to that go through this say, I, I actually, it's like a second job. You know, you're doing your day job, <laughs> and then it's like this second job piled on top of you. <laughs> it is. I, I mean, you know that that 12 month period, let's say, it probably added five years to me. I mean, you know, you <laughs> yeah. really, at the end of it, you, you're exhausted. Had a lot of meetings, you know, you got to meet a lot of people because we had the mezzanine lending group in, involved in it and we had the private equity group involved in it. And yeah, so it's, it's a lot. And, uh, you know, even if your business isn't that large and you want to sell, the same principles apply. You know, numbers are relative. You're going to do the same amount of work, uh, almost. You know, whether you're selling a business for a million or eight million or whatever the number may be, it's the same amount of work. So, you know, yeah, make, yeah, indeed. give that value, you know, build that business up and provide that value to the buyer. It'll pay off in the end. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and, and obviously prepare yourself for, for the journey, right? I, I, I think you don't... <laughs> So I say to people, don't. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, "I might go climb Mount Everest today." You know, you, you want to climb Mount Everest, you got to prepare. You need to get your everything lined up. You've got the right equipment. You've got the right team. You've got the right everything around you so that you are prepared for every eventuality. Yeah. And people are key. The right team. I got to tell you, you surround your good. You surround yourself with good people, and good things happen. A lot of people don't get that. Don't understand that about the organizations. But I'm just, you know. 
You're at the point where you have different layers of management. Get some good people around you. It makes all the difference. Yeah. That's a really good point. Craig, interested just quickly, I guess, on the uh, that 12-month period afterwards, I, I hear a lot of common sort of things around that, you know, and, and from good to bad, but, but uh, as an entrepreneur going in, it's no longer your company and there's decisions being made and everything. I was like, how did you handle that 12 months? What was it like for you? I wouldn't do it again. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, was, it was very difficult <clears throat> simply for the reason um, we had – different ideas about how you should do things on the board. Well, I, I hold a vote, but I'm one guy. You know, you get two investor groups and they don't see eye to eye. So you get caught in the middle of that. And it, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to juggle. I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't tell everybody as a blanket statement not to do that. But you do have to understand that, if you get purchased by, you know, if you're a big enough organization and a, a board of directors come in and you're not the guy calling the shots, you know, you have the amount of say to the extent of your equity. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. my say is worth 10% of the decision with a little bit extra because I've been in the business. But entrepreneurs know that their gut's usually right. Just stick with it because I've learned that. And that's why I'll, I always stayed here because I, it was enough. It was enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's such a dynamic sort of shift, isn't it, from being the entrepreneur, being the owner, being the guy who, you know, sure, you may listen to your management team and listen to your advisors, but ultimately when you're ready to make a decision, you make a decision. Um, and so now I guess in a, being in a scenario where decisions are made by committees. That's it. I was just going to tell you, and it was the first thing, <laughs> you know, I always tell my employees, this isn't a committee. This is not a democracy. Yep. <laughs> All right. But I want to hear what you have to say. And if I do something different, I'll tell you why. All right. But this is, you know, and to make that shift, like you say, because I can't run things by committee. I just don't do it. Yeah. Don't do well with it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we'll talk Well, absolutely, right? They went into business for themselves for a reason. And and I think a lot of that is to do with I'm going to broadly use the term freedom, but, you know, freedom to earn your money, freedom to spend your time the way you want, but freedom to do what you want when you want, I think, is the biggest driver. But it is. No, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you sharing this story because I think so many people I speak to and people who will be listening to this, uh, uh, you know, have either been through a bit of an experience like this or they're thinking about it and it's there's so many nuances and and let's be honest you you only get one chance you know if you sell your company that's it it's sold right so you want to do it properly yeah you don't want to leave money on the table you want to you know if you're going to stay on you want to make sure your situation is is set up the way you want it going in there's there are so many nuances and it's it's it can be a very tricky process um, without good people around you, so it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. So, Craig, tell us a little bit about what you what are you doing today? Now, you you know you went through this amazing experience, and you've come out the other side. It's been a successful transaction. You've learned a lot, no doubt. <laughs> so, where has it led you to? Yeah. So now I I like to share it. I I work as part time because I want to. I I work as a consultant. Pretty much one man show. Mm -hmm. I have other people that work with me as needed from time to time. But we work primarily with the entrepreneurs, small to medium sized businesses. Uh, I don't think any of my clients 
uh, or even close to the revenue I had, but we had some very good clients. And I really enjoy helping these people out. You get paid to do it, but I'm really unbelievably inexpensive um, compared to what you'd find with a, with a firm. Um, but I'm cheap, and uh, but I really enjoy it. And so, you know, we help people that are starting up. We help people that are trying to grow. They have good traction, and they're trying to go through that same kind of growth phase. Um, we, we help people through exit transactions um, in their sales. We help buyers evaluate businesses. So we kind of we're kind of a all around firm, but we do stick to the smaller working with the smaller companies because it's a lot of fun, and you know you get so many different personalities and dynamics that you get to work with. Uh, it makes it a lot of fun. So you know I don't take every project that comes along, but when I see one that really looks like somebody getting ready to do a breakout or, or it's, it's exciting for me. And, um, yeah, that's what I do. Now. Oh, that's great! It's uh, look, there's a a lot of a lot of people out there who need some help, and and you know, I think that the fundamental premise of this podcast is that entrepreneurship and being a business owner can be a lonely journey. Um, you know, it's and 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 look, I fundamentally believe that that entrepreneurs are the ones who truly change the world. Right, they're, they're the ones who look out into society. They see things that don't work. They see problems or things that could be done better, and they don't talk about it. They actually get up and go do something about it, and 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 that usually involves a great investment of time, money, sacrificing family, all sorts of stuff. Right, it comes solving those problems and making that contribution comes at a great cost. And so, yeah. So I think for us, it's about making sure those entrepreneurs and business owners they. They also get the reward they deserve for taking the risk and, and putting in the effort. So I applaud you, Craig, for doing what you're doing because there's lots of people out there who need some good help from guys like yourself who've, who've been through it. You know, we, I've actually had two clients from Australia. So <laughs> I'm not completely uh, uh, lost in, in your neck of the woods. but uh, And I had a lot of fun with both of them. So, uh, Oh, good. Yeah, so I mean, I you know, Today, with the internet and, and technology, you know, we have so many people working remotely now anyway, it, it doesn't matter. So I can help people anywhere. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a changed world, isn't it? it? Is. It's, uh, yeah, we've, we've come a long way. Craig, I'm, I'll, I'll ask you in a second um, to share with us, uh, if you can narrow this down, and I know how hard it is to narrow this down, but I'd love you to share maybe if there's one tip you'd share with your fellow entrepreneurs. But uh, before I get to that, What's the best way for people to reach out and contact you if, if they'd like to? Sure. I think um, probably one of the easiest things they can do is search me out on LinkedIn. My, our website's there. Or they can go directly to our website, um, which Simon will put up uh, shortly, I think. Um, yep. it, basically, and, and, you know, the email and the website comes directly to me. So. Excellent. So, so if you're looking on LinkedIn, and for those listeners – it's Craig Daly, and that's D-A-L-E-Y. You will find him, his location is Greater Tampa Bay Area. And you, if you've heard the show before, you've heard this, this statement before, but if you reach out to Craig on LinkedIn, please put a message in your connection. Perhaps let him know that you heard him on the Bible Cell podcast. Absolutely. Don't just send a connection, rest, connection request without a message. It's just weird. It is weird sometimes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we'd love to have your, your people come out and, and, and reach out to us. 
And, you know, I offer, we, we give them a free consultation. We don't charge for that. And we're very easy going. And if you want to hire us, you want to hire me, it's easy. And if you don't, that's okay too. We'd be happy to give you, a, a, you know, something, something to take with you that you can use in your business right now. So, yeah. Well, look, I know personally, Craig, even just talking to you now, I've taken so much value out of hearing your story and being able to ask some questions and, you know, that, that ability to have a chat with somebody. Um, I just think cuts straight through. You get so much, so much value out of it. So I think that's a, a wonderful offer. Um, we will put up your your uh, a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to your website, so that'll all be in the show notes for those who would like to um, access that a little easier. And Craig, of course, the the big question is: there one thing, one thing that you'd uh, one tip you'd share with other your fellow entrepreneurs? Well, if it if it had to be one thing, it would be just. Find the best people around you that you can bring to your organization because without those people, I mean, you're only as good as your weakest person. I think if I had to narrow it down to one thing is get the best people you can find and treat them well. Yeah, that's great advice. Come back to you. It'll come back to you in spades. Yeah. You know, I think it was Richard Branson who um, said, train people well enough, train people well so that they are good enough to leave and then treat them so well they don't exactly. want to leave. So great advice there. Surround yourself with good people, whether you're building a company and operationally looking at it, whether you're selling your company and you need a good deal team around you, get the best people you can get. That's fantastic advice. Craig, I'm so grateful. Thank you for sharing your story and your time. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, it's been a pleasure being on the show. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.